Welcome back everybody to a new episode. Um, Jordan is currently um, uh, busy, so uh, we will be continuing the profit episode once um, we kind of figure out like a, a time frame. Or not the top, we're going to figure out the profit episodes and stuff from the Old Testament, and we're going to continue with the apologetic study. So last time we left off, we were in Acts 17, and we were talking about miracle, uh, the biblical apologetics in the four areas. The miracles, fulfilled prophecy, natural revelation, and personal experience. Now, as we continue, just to summarize certain things, um, when philosophers use the term subjective immediary, um, it was uh, formed by three caveats, natural revelation, personal experiences, and double, um, double uh, barred um, arguments. Um, so, in the grounds of this, basically what the apologetics were, and um, a big manner of this, is that the apologetics were... Uh, coming from the Greek word apologia, meaning in defense of, and the Christian apologetics were the Christians that withstood persecution to try to explain to people what Christianity was and is. Now, one of the most famous uh, apologists was Irenaeus. And he uh, favored Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ. He also spoke against the Gnostics. Um, the Gnostics didn't have any prophecies that were fulfilled to support their faith. And when they came in, they came in with books that were heretic to the Bible things that would contradict Jesus's teachings and Irenaeus um, would basically speak upon that and he would envelop um, certainties to the Christian faith of what is true and what is not um, in the studies that we've that we go through um, I'm not fully sure where we left off uh, last time, but I do know that um, it, it did, we did get to the point where um, there was a medieval defense of faith. Um, there was a person, uh, Theodore Cora, was uh, an Eastern 9th, 9th century prophet. Uh, he tested revelation claims of Islam versus Christianity. What it says of God, says of sin, remedy it offers for human creation. Um, when he went through these different uh, viewpoints of Christianity versus Islam, he would demonstrate the superiority of Christianity. Now, when we think about Islam and Christianity 
I try not to think of Muslims as enemies. But when we look at Islam as a whole, the, the faith itself, it shows a very devout people. It shows a very engaged group of religion um, and religious uh, teachings and people that will, you know, basically bow to the sun five times a day. You know, and uh, they have to face Mecca, which is the holy city. When we look in this kind of aspect, when we try to understand this, we understand that Muslims don't have idols. Like, they don't have a cross with their savior on it. They don't have, you know, like in Catholicism, like the Virgin Mary and the saints that were around. Um, however, in Islam, I gotta make it a point to say they're facing Mecca, and that ingo that includes everybody in the entire world that is Muslim, whether they're on the east, whether in the west, north or south. They'll all have to face the direction of Mecca and pray five times a day. Um, Thomas Aquinas was one of the most influential medieval apologists and uh, of Western uh, Christ Christendom. He wrote the Summa Centra Gentiles, or uh, Supplemation Against the Pagans. He formed this in about the 13th century. Um, he used Aristotle over Plato, as he was even replaced as a favored philosopher. So, at this time, Plato being one of the most influential philosophers at the time, ended up switching over. Uh, he got replaced by Aristotle. This is another huge um, thing that Christians and people and believers need to understand, that philosophy and science do the exact same thing they bounce back and forth between these different um, belief systems. On one side, we're going to have scientists that are going to say the Big Bang happened. On another side, we're going to say that uh, there's a multiverse string theory. On another side, we're going to say that they're connected. There's different theories to support different claims of different evidences that people supposedly think is true. Then you have um, philosophers, which will say things that make sense to people, and people will take these philosophies and engage it in their everyday life. And then you have Christianity, which is the in inherent word of God, basically everything that God has spoken from the time of the Old Testament from Genesis all the way up to the New Testament with uh, Revelation. And um, 
going over from Old Testament Messiah um, ideas and the Messiah prophecies all the way up to the Messiah coming. When we see Aristotle versus Plato and Aristotle going over Plato being replaced, it is showing that, oh, people are replacing their faith in, uh, from one philosopher to a different one. And that doesn't go in the case with all things, but this is a good reference to see in Christianity that people are Christian, but they can focus on their denomination too much instead of the instead of the Bible itself. Um, as we continue to go through here. Um, We're going to go into the Renaissance, Reform, uh, Reform, uh, Renaissance and Reformation. So by the 15th and 16th centuries, the world opened up to explore, exploration, and then Plato returned as the ph philosophical prominence, which means that Plato ended up replacing Aristotle again. <laughs> so... We went from Plato to Aristotle, and now everybody is favoring Plato again. And the apologists of the era directed their efforts in adventure. Uh, adventurous thinkers committed to a platonic view of the world. Now, what that means is what they would do is the apologists would think in the words of Plato to defend Christianity. Why did they do that? Now, see, this is where it gets interesting. Now, when you are an apologist, you need to have a very strong foundation of faith because you're going to be reading things that might make you question things. If you're questioning the Bible, then there's a lot of questions to be had because you're not too sure which one is going to go where, which one is good, which one is bad, which one is... Um, happy which one is uh you know we're, we're not going we're going to be questioning the word of god if we go too deep into certain things i know i've had with my studies when i was younger but as i got older my foundation strengthened in christ and the bible and i learned that anything that any rock that you throw at the bible will be protected because the Bible is the Word of God. So, what they would do is they would study Plato's teachings, and they would learn about everything that has to do with Plato. And when they would have to defend Christianity, they would know the other person's beliefs before they would engage this would be in an act of um, this would form an act of a debate um, my favorite uh, my favorite um, apologist was Justin Martyr he was known as to be one of the forefathers or patriarchs of the apologetics came in around the first century and he uh He was born as a pagan, 
and he wanted to be a philosopher. You know, he knew Plato. He knew um, he knew all the different um, philosophers of his time. But then something happened. Everything clicked to him, and he found Christianity. It has been said that he had a recall ability beyond anybody else he that has ever mentioned a mental uh, cognitive recall ability in, in essence what I mean by that is he is able to recall scripture recall philosophy at the tip of his tongue almost instantly to direct a point to direct his intelligence and education in defense of the Christian faith. Now, the reason why he's my favorite is because he was directly in the persecution of the Christians, and he was born a pagan, so he chose to be persecuted. And on top of that, he his the people that followed him and listened to his um, debates and engagements... Um, he wrote to the Roman Empire, the first and second apologies, which in turn um, got them very angry, the Romans, and they ended up sending out a bunch of, um, you know, they ended up searching for him. After he wrote the first and second apologies, he knew he was being hunted. Um, they did have a, uh, another book you can read of him with the Dialogue of Trypho. And Trypho was a guy who believed in philosophy. And when he believed in philosophy, what ended up happening was <clears throat> the philosophical nature of him reflected the Christian side of Justin, martyr. And when they collided together and were debating, Justin would use the references of whatever Plato said and said, well, this is essentially what Moses said in the Bible, and that just parallels to what Plato said, and Moses is hundreds of thousands of years older. Um, as we go forward into the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, they, the Protestants weren't concerned with apologetics, as they were cleaning up the things that were done in the medieval churches. Although they did, they did have um, indirect value for apologists. So at this time, they were the Protestant Reformation had Protestant Christians that um, were being reformed, being taught, and listened to, uh, were reading the Bible themselves. Uh, at some point in time, the Catholic Church never ordained people to read from the Bible. It only had to be church clergy, and they had to interpret it for you. So the Protestants, as they would learn the, uh, and read the Bible, they would go out and they would try to explain to people um, what these interpretations were, and they would try to grow in the Protestant faith. Um, Luke, uh, Martin Luther um, had a uh, insistence on sola scriptura, which means sola, uh, solely scripture, were healthy, uh, um, basically healthy uh, actions to the medieval Aristotle and um, 
Thomas Thomasiac uh, phases. So, um, in in that manner, um, the Roman Catholics were opposed of the Reformation and argued that the Bible is an obscure book requiring the Roman Church to interpret it. So the Romans wanted to have full control of the Bible, and the Protestants were like, no, it's for everybody to read. So as they were going back and forth, it was kind of like a huge argument between people and stuff, and then um, a guy named Andreas Althammer produced books defending the, cl uh, the clarity um, and non-contradictory nature of the teachings of the Holy Scriptures, such as writings are the forerunners of modern uh, tre uh, treaties that deal with and refute claims that alleged errors and contradictions to the Bible. So what they were saying is that basically he was saying everything in the Bible is true. There's no contradiction to it. So if you see a contradiction or an error in it, you can try to refute it, but the alleged errors or contradictions, you there's no possible way to have an error or contradiction. In the 17th century, um, the apologetics, the last century of the old Western man, and when Christianity was thought to dominate the intellectual landscape of the West, the Protestant systematic theology, musical sublimation of Western musical tradition and labors to Luther J.S. Bach, uh, Lutheran J.S. Bach, and the literally su uh, sublimation of Milton's Paradise Lost and the Great Churches built by. Um, by Wren after the um, 1666 fire in London. So, when we look at this in the 17th century, we see that there was a lot of um, growth in the Christian fundamentals, and we see that the apologists took a very big stand when in the early days to try to ensure Christianity was a dominant thing and in this manner um, we see people that would dedicate their life to music for Christianity and churches um, we see people that would be doing literary literary sublimations for the Christian um, faith and we see people building um, great churches John Milton's uh, Paradise Lost was, in fact, one of, um, in my personal opinion, one of the greatest uh, poetry, um, biblical sublimations I have ever read. Um, it basically speaks to how the angels um, fell down to the earth, took the bride, uh, took humans as their brides, and so on, and. Uh, Basically, they have, um, 
if you actually look it up, you can actually see some of the, the classic artwork that was uh, attributed to this, this uh, set of poems, or poetry, they call it. But it's technically just like a storybook, but yeah. Um, so as we continue, we go to the Great Divide and the apologetic aftermath. The 18th century was characterized by pol uh, po was characterized politically by the French and American Revolution, and ideologically by deism. Deism is a belief that people should despise the revealed religion of his of historic Christianity. Uh, contaminated by uh, superstition blood sacrifices miracles and focus on a religion of nature focusing on God's natural law and morality so in that manner what they're saying is that deism is supposed to be an aspect of what people are saying to um, basically back away from the religion and focus on uh, nature stuff which is essentially more of like a pagan wicca tradition type thing um when people focus on nature and everything they're taken away from the actual biblical nature of jesus um even though everything was created under god and they're saying we gotta look at nature as god and everything that is taken away god created nature for us to survive not for us to worship but Enlightenment philosophers, such as Immanuel Kant, uh, claimed um, traditional proof of God's existence was inadequate and that the only absolute ethic could be established. They called this the categorical imperative. As it continued, um, other people like... Uh, Gothold um, Lessing wanted philosophical truths, but considered historical inadequate, uh, enduring uh, world, uh, world and biblical history. David Hume claimed that owning a uniform experience, miracles could always be rejected out of hand since it would always depend on the witness being true over the story being told. During this time, the apologists became required to combat these the disbelievers and or philosophers. So, in this time, during the divide, the great divide and apologetic aftermath, basically, there was a rise in paganistic beliefs, disbelievers, deism, all this other stuff, and all of a sudden, the apolog apologists rose again to try to fight against these people. So, William Paley, uh, Natural Theology uh, Through Evidence, uh, argued that sound biblical witnesses, both as God's hand in nature and the soundness in the New Testament. Um, Thomas Sherlock mentioned in his work, The Trial of the Witness and the Resurrection of Jesus, that people in the first century could distinguish... Uh, the most famous difference in the 18th century 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I continued where I wasn't supposed to. Um, basically, Thomas Sherlock was saying that people in the first century could distinguish... Um, could distinguish the difference between truth and false in miracles and stuff like that. Um, the most famous defense in the 18th century was Bishop Butler's analogy of religion, attempted to convince the deist using his reasoning scriptural te uh, in scriptural teaching. Um, Butler said was what Butler said was directly. Um, Inaligus to the work of God in nature. Since the deist accepted the latter, he couldn't reject the former examples followed. Nature displays seed falling into the ground dying, followed by the life again every spring. Scripture represents the crucifixion, followed by the resurrection. Humanity, uh, human society only survives because each person acts for others, but another... Um, connect uh, another cannot do and scripture makes the same uh, divine uh, superstition for salvation in other words he wasn't saying that it was superstition he was saying <clears throat> when we look at the way nature works the the scriptures of the Bible and the um, essence of um, the essence of God himself and everything is basically showing how it works you know you get a tree that drops a, a seed you know a nut or something into the ground that seed gets into the ground it gets rain hits it that the 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 seed starts to grow. The seed grows into a, sh a little, you know, plant, and then starts growing into a tree, and then we have another tree, you know. And essentially, he was saying that in that in that aspect, you can follow nature and you can follow God at the same time. But God should always take precedence. He should always be ahead of everybody uh, of nature because he's the creator of the nature. The 19th century dealt a very hard blow because Darwin did his um, Origin of the Species, um, John Henry Newman um, used to fight with Revelation and uh, with epistemological and historical grounds, essays on miracles, uh, grammar of ascent, his arguments uh, raise testimonies of the resurrection of Christ. The raise of the level of the argument to a practical certainty cannot be rationally dismissed. Um, Soren uh, Kierkegaard, um, the father of extracentralism, um, extra took a route of truth is subjective as finite creatures, we cannot have ideolog um, ideology we've never experienced. We can only experience our existence. As we continue going through some of these people, um, we look into the apologetics today. Um, 20th century appeared a powerful rise and a powerful case against um, 
metaphysical and religious thinkers. This grew as Ludwig um, Wittgenstein's uh, Troikrius uh, logical philosophists part of the Vienna circle of analyzed uh, analytical philosophers. Um, we see many theologians today uh, going through this stuff, but what I have noticed, and what's really most important to take away from all this, is uh, what's really good to take away from all this, is that many theologians countered this position by discounting the read of verification all non-Christian Jewish religions lack testability. The Christian faith alone offers solid empirical historical evidence of its truth and especially the way of Jesus. So the issue with that, and this is just my personal belief on this, is that the issue with this is saying that the Jewish religions lack testability. Christianity is essentially a Jewish religion. I mean, it's technically started in, you know, Israel and Judah area. So, um, Jesus himself was technically Jewish. So, um, when we look at it, everything in the Old Testament can be reaffirmed in the New Testament. And when we see that, we see the continuity of the Bible. We see the parallels. We see everything that can go from point A to point B. Right, And when we go to point A to point B, we can reflect back into different verses of scripture to test each um, verification. And each verification can be redefined in different verses of scripture. Therefore, we literally have a like an umbrella. You go from one point, you take that point, you go over to the New Testament. You find that point, you know, and then that can branch down to numerous different... Old Testament philosophies. So I call it the um, umbrella of Scripture. Um, when we go through there, we, we see that it doesn't make a difference. Christian faith alone uh, alone can offer everything, as well as the it offers everything because of the reef um, the affirmation of everything that happened in the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, the 20th and 21st century marked uh, many influential Christian apologists. Liberal churches didn't carry on apologist activity. Liberal churches don't want anything to do with apologetics. Uh, apologetics. Liberalism has continued to accommodate the secular world and The evolution trial drove many evangelists into separate, uh, into separation from intellectual life and apolog apologetics. Now, this is where things are going to get interesting. Um, I'm going to explain this uh, at the end. We go into B.B. Warfield, defense of scripture, inerrancy. Uh, in separation from authority of the Bible had a huge impact, especially on Reformed theology circles, but the Western Minister Theological Seminary, and I want you to listen to that, Western Theological Seminary, theologian Cornelius Van Til, criticized Warfield's argument because it wasn't Calvinistic. 
since it didn't start the presupposition uh, of the truth of the faith and God's sovereignty above all evidential conditions. In the 21st and uh, 20th and 21st century, the apparent growth of apologists deemed to be exalting themselves over each other instead of working together to defend the truth of the Bible against non-believing heretics that led the lost, uh, the lost further astray. The reason why I'm bringing this part up is because as I kept reading, you know, now we're going to go into a couple other people and I will bring this up. C.S. Lewis practiced tough-minded and tender-minded apologetics. Mere Christian broadcast brought faith to many Christians. David Declis, uh, a literary um, critic, remarked he had been converted through Lewis over Billy Graham's revival campaigns. So he's saying that C.S. Lewis had more influence on him. Now, I'm not sure if I went over all of this stuff in the last episode. It's just been kind of like a, a very uh, stressful time for me. So, um, but these coming from the, the studies that I've been doing, I, I thought that this would be a cool history to learn. Um, as we go through, we see the tender-minded front um, of him doing a sci-fi uh uh, trilogy, um, and then we also see the Chronicles of Narnia, which is fantasy. His tough minded was miracles dealt with Humes, short circuit historical ph philosophical investigations. The problem with pain uh, shows God had to exist in the evils of the world. Um, as we go to the 20th century, continued to influence the presuppositionalist approach by major. Representatives, philosopher Gordon Clark and theologian Cornelius Van Til. Van Til expressed all that is yellow to the jaundiced eye to combine a presupposition with the ultra-Calvinistic or ultra-Calvinist understanding of predestination. Um, Alvin Plantega historical argumentation was inadequate and no demonstration that Christian is true and will succeed with the unbeliever. The apolog uh, apologetic task cannot go past Christian theism and his legitimate plausibility and warranted. Although it is extremely argued and critiqued by presuppositionalists, Montega's work, God and the Other Minds, is single-handedly recognized as the best treatments of the problem of evil and respected for Christian thinking in the secular circles in America. So, to go back on all of this, so people can understand why I'm explaining things about these first century, or not, these 20th century apologists, is that we went into seminary schools and stuff, and these seminary schools started debating with others that were trying to defend God. We see there is a radical divide in Christians themselves, not in protecting and defending the Christian faith, but protecting and um, but protecting and understanding what they wanted 
that they wanted to exalt themselves as, you know, leading apologists and stuff like that. When I look at this in a manner of a, as a Christian, I do not want to ever put myself into fame and into fortune for the for the sense of God. I want to put myself in the humility and being humble for God. I want to show him that I'm defending the faith because that's what we need to do. For this world today to have Christianity, it's more of a threat to the secular world than it is to the nature of God. Because when we look at it, the secular world deems us as a threat. They, they deem everything that's Christian because we follow um, a book that they deem primitive. A book that, that explains the word of God that explains everything that we are supposed to be, how we're supposed to stand, how we're supposed to bring up ourselves, how we're supposed to continue to fight through any kind of persecution and rebellion and any of that stuff. And instead, we have multiple different groups and divisions in the world where people are literally flagging themselves as this is who they are, this is who they are, this is who they are, in reference to to go against people that will not conform to the secular world. In other words, if we look at the world today, we have we have one book we need to follow. That is the Bible. The apologists wrote articles on the Bible that they deemed would defend it from secular and um, pagan religions and uh, philosophers. Basically, they wanted to keep the ground foundation cemented in there for, um, for God. The Bible will always be that foundation. They were just trying to build upon that foundation so it's pr protected more. The apologists are some people that I revere as very important to the Christian faith because they are defending what needs to be defended by bringing people that are so completely confused in the manner of what the Bible is teaching and why it should be good or bad because of different people, different philosophers, different theologians, different um, secular believers that will contradict and try to push against the Bible. We see that God himself gave us the word to be translated to be refined in a way that people can take interpretations of it and defend it in any manner of speak. So if you learn the enemy's belief, you can use it against them. But if you learn the enemy's belief and you start believing it, then you start questioning stuff. This is basically grounds of Satan's work. It's very hard for somebody to go into this area unless you're very sound in your foundation with Christ. It's not for everybody to do. So, when I look at the world today, 
and I see the secular world, and I see how they're trying to push agendas against the biblical nature of the world, I see that what we need to do is be apologists. Not in the sense we're following other apologists, but in the sense that we're following the Bible and defending it with the Word of God. If somebody is going to tell you that the Big Bang happened, and they're putting the burden of proof on you that where's the creationism, read some of the blogs that I put up. Read Genesis. And then look into some of the, uh, the beliefs that they have, saying that the Big Bang came from, you know, nothing, or as um, Richard Dawkins stated, that there was a self-replicating molecule that um, inherently grew to the point where it created the universe. Um, it might have had an explosion which created the Big Bang. Um, look into string theory, look into this and that, and then you can understand that all these things have one flaw. They have no sense of creation. They have a sense of belief of where they could come from. They have a sense of um, mathematical interpretation. But when we come down to all of this and we try to fully understand everything, Einstein, um, Hubble, uh, you know, we have... Um, Stephen Hawking, we have all these different um, scientists. Hawking, for example, you know, like a lot of these scientists believe that everything can be solved through mathematics. Now, I want you to understand something with mathematics. Mathematics is a human creation, right? We all learned how to do math, you know, and as math grew in time, we learned, we advanced it. And as we advanced math, it continued to grow. It became a center of society for deeming um, monetary value, to deem um, pricing on specific products, to deem uh, financial reoccurrences, to deem uh, equations, to deal uh, with some sort of uh, physics, to deal with statistics, to deal with anything from under the sun, from mathematics has always been a huge part in society here's the problem mathematics is an intelligence design it's been created intellectually so because mathematics is intellectual and was formed by intelligence and everything can be explained through mathematics right if everything can be explained through mathematics, which would deem the creation of the universe being mathematical, that would mean that the mathematical observation of the universe would essentially mean that it was part of an intelligent design. It's simple as that, you know. Now, when it comes down to these kind of aspects, you're going to have different people that are, that are more versed in mathematics than I am. I'm really bad at math, but... Um, when it comes down to mathematics being in intellectual design and an intellectual feat that humanity or humans have created, um, we look at that and then we see on the other side of it the universe. 
Well, mathematics can be bridged in gravitation. It can be bridged in um, black holes. It can be bridged in the universe. So if all of this stuff can be bridged in mathematics, that means the universe was created by an intelli intelligent design. Sorry, I'm choking on my tongue. I'm really thirsty. So... If you're going to try to defend the Bible, and you're going to do it against any kind of atheist or any kind of person that deems science or philosophy or anything worthy in that manner, you have to understand that to defend something, you need to understand the flaws in their view, the flaws in their intelligence. You might not always win a person over. You might not always get to that point where... Um, you might not always get to that point where you'll win the person to Christ, but you'll put enough doubt and enough of a seed into their heart where God might water it, and that might grow, and then they can reject their former beliefs and go to what is true in sound, not just in faith but in God himself and that essentially would grow into a person converting to Christianity giving their life to God and that would be because of the defense and pushing not really pushing the Bible on them but defending the Bible to them so they can understand the true nature of it um I am looking forward to having an actual episode of um, The Prophets for you guys uh, next week. Um, I am going to talk to Jordan about that, and we will get back to you during that time. Um, as for... Um, As for any questions or concerns, you can always email me, ministermartyr at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter for any kind of updates, or if you need to reach out, um, my Twitter is at ministermartyr. And um, you can always check out my uh, website, ministermartyr.wordpress.com. And um, you can check out the blogs there. And there's certain blogs in there that would help you with some sort of defense in the apologetics. Um, in that manner... Um, God bless you all. Have a great uh, weekend.